the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. So if God considers money matters to be so important that he is compelled to continually speak about it in his word, then it is obvious to us and should be obvious that we ought to hear what he has to say. We depend on money in nearly every facet of our lives. In our society, in fact, someone with no money would probably not live very long if they had no one to help them. Money is a big deal. Yet in many conservative churches, we don't want to talk about money for fear that folks would think the church leadership is just after their money. And in some churches, that really is the case. Hi, welcome to Verse by Verse with Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. The name Verse by Verse comes from Pastor Steve's expository preaching method, which takes him one verse at a time through the Bible. So, having come to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Pastor Steve will be guiding us through a passage that some preachers would just as soon skip. But that would be a mistake, because there is such a rich blessing in understanding and applying the truths contained in this part of Paul's letter to the church at Corinth. If you have your Bible, I encourage you to follow along, and let's see what God says about giving. Well, let's open our Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 as we continue in our study of this wonderful letter that Paul wrote to this church at Corinth. And I want to read to you the first five verses. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning at verse 1. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia that in a great ordeal of affliction their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God." This morning, as we continue in our ongoing study of Second Corinthians, we have arrived at a chapter, and actually the next two chapters, that deal with a subject that we seldom speak about at Lakeside, and that is the subject of money, and specifically the topic of giving. In 21 years of ministry as pastor of Lakeside, you can really count on your fingers the number of times I have spoken about giving. And the reason that I rarely speak about giving is because I don't want to give the wrong impression. I don't want to give the wrong impression about our church as a church that is out to get your money. And I don't want to give the wrong impression as a pastor, as one who is out to financially exploit you for my own gain. So I don't speak that much about it. You see, just like you, I react with contempt to financial scandals in a ministry that bring reproach upon the name of Christ. That bothers me, terribly bothers me. And just like you, I can't stand the 
the arm twisting and the manipulative techniques and tactics used in, used in many uh, Christian organizations for fundraising. And just like you, I am completely turned off by radio and television pastors and preachers and evangelists who spend about 25 minutes of a half-hour broadcast pleading for money, and then with the remaining five minutes, they tell you what they're going to do with that money. So I understand all of that. So at Lakeside, we don't want to be identified as a church that puts constant pressure on its people to just give, give, give. We don't want to do that. The ministry is really about serving you. It's giving to you. It's not taking and getting anything from you and pleading with you to give. And it's because we want to serve you properly that when we do come to a portion of the Bible, like 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, that we have to address money and giving. We must instruct you on what God has to say. I wouldn't be a faithful pastor if I didn't teach you what God has to say on this subject. And though I may be overly sensitive to issues relating to money, I want you to understand the Bible is not. The Bible speaks about money a great deal. God has a lot to say about finances, how we should acquire money, how we should not acquire money, how we should spend it, how we should not spend it, how we should invest it, how we should not invest it what our attitude should be towards money, what they should not be towards money, how to give and, and to whom should we give. The Bible has a great deal to say about finances. In fact, just to underscore the importance that God puts upon the subject of money, I want, to, I want you to consider several facts. First of all, the Bible mentions wealth and poverty over 2,000 times. Isn't that amazing? You're supposed to go, oh, yeah, thank you over 2,000 times, which is twice as many times as it mentions the subjects of faith and prayer. Interesting. And in the New Testament, Jesus taught more about financial stewardship than about heaven and hell combined. I'll try to tell you something about what God considers about these issues. And did you realize that one out of every 10 verses in the Gospels deal with money? Consider this, of the 38 parables that Jesus taught, 16 of them touch on how to handle money and earthly possessions. Now, why did Jesus speak so often about money? Was he a fundraiser like so many today, just trying to generate funds for his, his personal needs? No. The reason he spoke so much and so often about money is that he knows the natural inclinations and the natural tendency of all of us is to let money control us and to dictate our behavior. That's, that's exactly why. That's why Jesus said, and I read this just, in the, uh, just before the pastoral prayer, where Jesus said, you cannot serve God and wealth, meaning you cannot have two masters. If you have two masters, then neither one is your master. You can't have two masters. You cannot have money ruling your life and have God ruling your life at the same time. Can't happen. You see, money plays such a major role in our lives that we need constant direction on issues relating to finances, relating to possessions. You will either love God and serve him, or you will love money and serve it. And that's why Jesus spoke so often about it, because we need constant direction on it. 
So if God considers money matters to be so important that he is compelled to continually speak about it in his word, then it is obvious to us and should be obvious that we ought to hear what he has to say. So this morning, as we come to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, along with 2 Corinthians 9, what we're going to see is not just about money, but about giving. These two chapters offer the most extensive teaching in Scripture on giving, the most extensive teaching in all the Word of God on the subject of giving. Now, that may strike you odd, and it may strike you as, as foreign-sounding to Paul's letter to 2 Corinthians. Those of you who have been with us for a while understand that the main point of 2 Corinthians is Paul defending himself before the Corinthians that he is a genuine and true apostle, that he isn't a fake, that he isn't a fraud, that he isn't a counterfeit apostle. So how does money fit in? Suddenly in chapter 8, the tone of the letter for the next two chapters changes as Paul appeals and he teaches the Corinthians about giving. Why this abrupt change? And where does, where does money have to fit in to the rest of this letter. Now, let me put it together. You will recall, as Paul closed chapter 7, he closed it by telling us that when his friend and colleague in ministry, Titus, arrived in a place called Macedonia, Titus told him some great news. And the good news and the great news was this. Paul, the Corinthians have been responsive to your first letter. They have repented over their sins, and especially their sin of their attitude, their bad attitude towards you. They want to be restored to fellowship with you. They want that friendship and warmth and relationship that they once had with you restored. They can't wait to see you again. And that's tremendous. And that's where chapter 7 left us. But that wasn't all that Titus told Paul about his visit to Corinth. He, he told him and conveyed to Paul that the Corinthians had become lax about a certain project that they had started a year earlier. And you know what that project was? It was collecting money for the poor Jewish Christians at the church in Jerusalem. Now, let me explain about this collection and what was going on in the Corinthian church. And if you understand this, you will have no trouble understanding these next two chapters. This is the entire background of this. When the church was born on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, we're told that Peter preached to a crowd and 3,000 Jewish people accepted Christ as Lord, Messiah, Savior. But we rejoice with that, but you should understand something. With the salvation of so many Jewish people at that time, the church of Jerusalem was filled with a lot of poor people because these people immediately faced some serious economic problems, and I'll tell you why. Many of these new Jewish believers became the victims of social and economic uh, ostracism from their families and their friends. Their, their families and friends, many of them severed ties with them. The unsaved Jewish community turns away from them. Not only would many of them be kicked out of the synagogues, but with that, it would mean you have no more business dealings with us. Now, that's pretty rough when you're in Jerusalem. That's a tough thing. And so the church at Jerusalem was suddenly filled with thousands of Jewish believers who were very, very suddenly poor with many material needs. And that was the social situation. We rejoice in their salvation. But socially, that was a tremendous burden upon the church. And so I'd like you to just follow this a little bit. If you go back to Acts chapter 4, you'll understand why this was taking place and what was going on. These verses don't make sense unless you understand the historic context. Acts chapter 4, for example, beginning at verse 32, speaking of the church at Jerusalem, 
Remember, these are the early days of the church. It's never existed before. You now have a church filled with thousands of very poor Jewish people. And verse 32, And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonged to him, uh, belonging to him rather was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and abundant grace was upon them all. And there was not a needy person among them for all who were owners of lands or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet and they would be distributed to each as any had need. Do you understand what he's saying? That you now had many poor people who had essentially nothing And those who were wealthy said, whatever I have, I share with you. Whatever your needs are, consider what belongs to me is belonging to you. And so there was great demonstration of love and unity for each other by sharing the material needs that they had. They just brought it to the apostles' feet and they said, we trust you to take care of the needs of the people. Now, several years follow this. Several years pass now as we go further along in church history the early days of the church, but several years, we jump ahead since the inception of the church in Jerusalem and something very, very critical and strategic has happened in uh, the church. There was a, a rabbi by the name of Saul of Tarsus who came to faith in Jesus as his Messiah. And Saul, as you know, became the famous, at least famous to us, Apostle Paul. And after Paul grows in the Lord for a few years, he becomes a leader in a church at a place called Antioch. Antioch. And while serving in this leadership capacity, he becomes aware, he's already aware that the saints in Jerusalem are poor, but he becomes aware that a famine is going to hit the land. In fact, let's go to Acts chapter 11. In Acts chapter 11, beginning at verse 27, we read this. Now, at this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would be, there would certainly be a great famine all over the world, meaning the world of the Roman Empire. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief, watch this, of the brethren living in Judea, meaning what we would call Israel today. And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. That would be Barnabas and and Paul. So understand this. Paul already knows the plight of the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. They're poor already. Nothing has really changed. But now on top of that, there's a famine coming. They're going to be devastated. It, It was bad enough that they were poor. Now they're going to be even poorer. Now even the wealthy people are going to be hit. And so Paul and Barnabas make a collection from the church and they go to to Jerusalem and give it to the believers. But Paul's interest in helping these poor Jewish believers did not stop there. Sometime later, he uh, goes up to Jerusalem again and there's a council that's held. Why is there a council? We call the Jerusalem Council. You don't need to turn there, but Acts 15 tells us about this because there were certain Jewish people who understood that now that the gospel was going out to the Gentiles, they said the Gentiles must become Jews first in order to become Christians. They said the Gentiles must be circumcised, they must keep the law of Moses, and and so Paul and others and the apostles said, no, that is not the gospel message. Salvation never has taken place by the keeping of the law. 
Circumcision could never get a person right before God. Keeping the Ten Commandments could never justify a person. It is by faith alone, grace alone, through faith alone. And that was what Paul argued, and they acknowledged that. Now, let's go to Galatians chapter 2, which is one book after 2 Corinthians. We're We're just putting this together, and once you see it, you're going to understand what this is about. Galatians chapter 2, Paul is relating to the Galatians what took place at this Jerusalem council. He says in chapter 2, verse 9, speaking of the council, he said, in recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas, Cephas is another word for Peter, and John, who were reputed to be pillars, meaning pillars at the Jerusalem church, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Paul said, they recognize that I have been called, though Jewish, I have been called to tell the Gentiles about Christ. And they recognize that they had primarily been called to tell Jewish people about the Lord. But watch verse 10. They only asked us to remember the poor the very thing I was eager to do. You know what Paul is saying? He's saying this. The Jerusalem council said, yes, Paul, preach the gospel. By all means, preach the gospel to the Gentiles. We recognize that's God's work in your life. Preach the gospel to the Gentiles. But, but Paul, don't forget the poor Jewish believers in Israel. That's the poor he's referring to. Preach to the Gentiles, but don't forget your poor brethren in Israel. Jerusalem. And Paul said, I was eager to help as well. In other words, he's saying they didn't even have to tell me that. I would have done that anyway. And this is where 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9 fit in all this. You see, the way that Paul decided to help the poor in Jerusalem was to instruct the various Gentile churches to collect money for them. That was his plan. He said, I was eager to help them. Well, Paul wasn't a wealthy man himself. How was he going to do this? He was going to collect money from the Gentile churches to send to Jerusalem. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians now, chapter 16. 1 Corinthians, this is his first letter, and he writes to them about this collection. Same people that he's writing 2 Corinthians to a little bit later. But chapter 16, starting at verse 1, so you understand. They're poor in Jerusalem. He wants to do something about it. He writes to the churches, let's take a collection. We'll get it to them. Verse 1, now concerning the collection for the saints, he means the poor Jewish saints at Jerusalem. As I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. So Paul had already told the churches in the region of Galatia to do this. Now he's telling the Corinthians. And here's what they're supposed to do. On the first day of every week, that's Sunday, you get together, he says, each one of you, is to put aside and save. So everyone in the church, everyone who takes the name of Christ on Sundays, when you come together, you put aside, you save as he may prosper so that no collections be made when I come. Paul said, when you meet together to be taught, to be instructed, to worship, I want you to take a collection for the Jewish believers. Every one of you, as God has prospered you, if he's prospered you a lot, then give more. If he's prospered you a little, then give less. And he says in verse three, when I arrive, Whomever you may approve, I will send with them or send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. Paul said, I don't want a collection taken when I'm there. I want you to be doing it now. When I arrive, you tell me who you want to uh, carry this gift to Jerusalem. We'll send letters with them and they'll take it. That's, that's Paul's instruction. They had been instructed to do this. 
Paul said, after I arrive there, we'll make arrangements. Not only would this be the loving thing to do, would it be helpful in relieving some of the financial burden, but watch this. From Paul's perspective, the Gentile Christians had a moral obligation to do this. This is more than charity. This is a moral obligation, and you need to see this. This is important. Romans chapter 15. This was a great burden to Paul, and it ought to be something that you understand. Romans 15, beginning at verse 26. Paul writes, For Macedonia, meaning the churches there, and Achaia, meaning the churches there, and Corinth was in that region, by the way, of Achaia, have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Watch this. Yes, they were pleased to do so, and they are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. And do you understand what Paul is saying? In other words, since Gentiles had received spiritual riches in the form of the gospel from the Jewish people, especially the mother church in Jerusalem, then they, meaning these Gentile Christians now, were indebted to return some material riches to the poor Jewish believers who were in such great need. If they've shared with you spiritual riches, then you need to share with them material riches. That was Paul's passion, Paul's passion. So Paul saw this collection among the, uh, among the Gentile churches as more than, than charity, as more than a kind thing to do, though certainly it was all of that. He believed that they had a moral duty to minister to the mother church at Jerusalem, their brethren who they had never seen, who they didn't, didn't really know. But, and here's the twist, when Titus visited the Corinthians, he discovered they hadn't made much progress in this collection. They hadn't done much about it. They said they would, but they hadn't. Now, now let's go back to 2 Corinthians 8, and we'll, we'll put it together from this chapter. Verse 6, for example, says, So we urge Titus that as he had previously made a beginning, so he would also complete in you this gracious work as well. It wasn't completed. So we, we want to Titus to help you to complete this. Verse 10. I give my opinion on this matter, for this is to your advantage, who were the first to begin a year ago, not only to do this, but also to desire to do it. Paul said, you started a year ago. Now you got to finish it. Titus will help you, but, but what are you, what are you doing now? Why haven't they finished it? Oh, we're not told specifically. What, what had gone wrong? Why, why did they start a year ago and, and let it go? Um, we don't know for certain. Probably. It was because of all their internal sin problems. It may very well have been that the false teachers who were there were taking money for themselves. We don't know for sure what took place so that this was delayed. But according to the close of chapter 7, Paul said, hey, those, those problems, apart from the false teachers, they're, they're taken care of. They've been dealt with. You've repented of your sins. We, we've been restored to fellowship, and I plan to visit you again. Now, finish what you started. Notice verse 11. But now finish doing it also, so that just as there was the readiness to desire it, so there may be also the completion of it by your ability. Paul says, finish it. Get going on this. And you know what? That's exactly what 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 are all about. That's what they're about. These chapters contain Paul's renewed encouragement to the Corinthians to finish the collection for the Jewish believers at Jerusalem. Note that. That's exactly what this is about. 
I'm sure we've all heard the old saying that it's better to give than to receive. It's generally used sarcastically, but there's actually a lot of truth in that, especially when we give cheerfully and sacrificially. It was nice to have you with us today for Verse by Verse, a Bible class of the air featuring the expository or verse by verse Bible teaching of Pastor Steve Kreloff. He's the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. For more about Lakeside, go online to lakesidechapel.com or call 727-441-1714. We are thankful at Verse by Verse for the generous givers who help finance these broadcasts. If you're blessed listening to them, you can give easily and securely at our website, versebyverseradio.org, or call Lakeside at 727-441-1714. We also have all our previous programs available at the website for free streaming or downloading. Just go to versebyverseradio.org and click the message archive link. This is Jerry Peterson. When I was in college, I rang bells for the Salvation Army one Christmas. They let me use a little phonograph player with Christmas music, and I had a microphone. That was fun. Back then, the police in Bronxville, New York, walked a beat, and the officer who passed me on his beat would pause each time he went by to see how I was doing. Shoppers would pass by repeatedly, too, as they went from store to store, and some of us were almost best friends by the end of my shift. From time to time, I would announce, Don't give till it hurts, just give till it helps. Oh, boy, did I ever have it backwards. I had a lot to learn at that young age concerning what the Bible says about giving. You see, if it doesn't hurt a little bit when we give, well, then it's not the generosity God desires. Pastor Steve will explain on the next Verse by Verse. We are here to give you strength between... Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.